First off, a special hello to Corey. Corey Zapin is not here with us tonight, but he is watching live, thanks to Jonathan. And uh, on behalf of everyone here, we wish him Rafua Shalema. He should feel better soon. Amrit Hashem. Feel better, Corey. Welcome back to David, who is with us. Good to have you back. And also, Mrs. Ganek, been a long time. Nice to have you back with us. The topic this evening is self-esteem. And I'd like to do something that's kind of trite. It's been done often in these types of settings. It's trying to analyze the, the connection between self-esteem and animal sacrifice. What's the connection between self-esteem and animal sacrifice? We start the Chumash V'yikro, and we have a lot of mitzvos, a lot of details regarding karbonos. So I'd like to see what that connection is and how we could actually make it practical to our own lives without needing to sacrifice animals in our backyard. The starting point is that self-esteem is spoken about in the, the modern world. It's been a buzz phrase now for decades. But the truth is, going back to the 13th century, the Rabbeinu Yonah tells us that if you want to know what the key ingredient is to really thriving, to really excelling in your Avodas Hashem, it all comes down to appreciating who you are. The Rabbeinu Yonah writes, he's well known for his Sefer Shari Tshuva, but he also has a Sefer Shari Avoda. And at the, at the beginning of Shari Avodah, he says, HaPesach HaRishon Hu, the first starting point, that first step in our Avodah Hashem, is that Sheyeda Isha Oved Erech Atzmo, is that we should realize the value of ourselves, our self-worth. V'yakir Malasu Malas Avosav, and we should recognize my own qualities and the qualities of my ancestors, their greatness, their importance, and how much Hashem loved them and how much Hashem loves me. And then when we have this, this feeling of confidence, everything we do and everything we say and how we conduct ourselves is different. We should walk around being proud of who we are and where we come from. Every year, the, the Boca Raton police has a, a get-together for like a memorial service for police officers who have fallen in the light of duty. And I've been there for two years now. I have the opportunity to recite a benediction at the end of the service. So the first time I was there, I was blown away by all of the ritual that's involved. You have the 13 rifle salute, and they fold the flag in a particular way, and they take it so seriously. And you look at the people who are involved in the ceremony, and, and they feel like they're on top of the world, being able to, to wear the uniform, to represent the, the police department, to go through the ritual, what it symbolizes, the meaning behind it. They have a sense of real pride. Says there, Ben Yonah, we all have to have that. Lihis noeg batamid. And then if we live with this vision, with this feeling of who we are, 
Then when a challenge comes our way and we're tempted to do something or we're tempted to say something I don't really want to do or say, I'm not going to be embarrassed of God. That's something we strive for. But even if I'm not quite there, yevosh me'atzmo, ve'yevosh ve'vosav, I should feel busha, I should be embarrassed of myself. How can I allow myself to do this? How can I disappoint my father and my grandfather and my great-grandfather? That itself could be one of the most powerful motivations in preventing ourselves from doing the wrong thing and inspiring ourselves to do the right thing. Erech atzmo, knowing my own value. Now often we underestimate what our value is. There's an interesting discussion between Hashem and Moshe Rabbeinu, where Hashem first tells Moshe the mitzvah of building the Mishkan. And Moshe's first response is, of so, so, is it possible for the Jewish people? We're going to all work together. We'll have millions of people participating. But how can we galvanize that level of Kedusha to be able to, to build a physical edifice to somehow have your Shechina in our presence? How, how do we have that power? That was Moshe's question to Hashem. Amr le'akadosh baruch Hu. Hashem said back to Moshe, Afilu echad mi Yisrael yachol asoso. You don't think the entire Jewish people could do it? I want to teach you something, Moshe. Even one person has the kedusha. Even one Jew has that power within him or her to bring the shechina down into this world. And Moshe Rabbeinu was a pretty smart man. He was in the 49th level of Chachma. But he was so incredibly off in his assessment of himself and his assessment of Klal Yisrael. The, the, the force that we could tap into, sometimes even the greatest people totally underestimate. And when we look at other people, sometimes you'll, you'll be talking to somebody or you'll just notice the way someone's interacting and you think to yourself, Oh my gosh, he is so arrogant. Right? He thinks so highly of himself. Look at the way he's just bragging and boasting. But sometimes we totally misread other people also. There's an amazing Rabbeinu Yonah where he speaks about the source of gaiva. Why do we feel arrogant? Where does that come from? So he says something that now the world of psychology has proven through many different studies but this goes back to the 13th century. The Ben Yonah writes in source number three. Why do I feel that need to, to view myself as higher or more respectable than you? Why do I feel this need that you should look at me and admire me? It's coming from a chisara. It's coming from deep down subconsciously I know I'm lacking. I know there's a void. And I'm trying to fill that void through making you think highly of me. And even though as I'm telling you all my amazing accomplishments, and I'm trying to, to, to create this picture of myself in your eyes, I don't realize where it's coming from. Because we all have a neshama, that's the essence of who we are. 
We feel when we're not where we should be. And there's an emptiness inside that's causing us pain, that's causing us anguish. And the way we want to fill that void is if I can make them think highly of me, then I could begin to believe in myself and I could feel better. It doesn't really work. So if Erech Atzmo, of understanding our own self-worth, is the Pesach Rishon, that's the first step in all of our Vodas Hashem, yet we see it's so complicated that we could underestimate ourselves, we could underestimate others, and at the same time we could often misread the situation. You could think someone's filled with gaiva and arrogance when in reality they're just totally insecure. They're trying to prove themselves. What you do find in the world though is that when there's real humility, then you have real self-confidence. Those two things go hand in hand. Who were the three most humble people ever to walk the planet? As the Gemara in Shabbos says, Avraham Avinu, when he told Hashem, I'm just like dust, I'm nothing. And Moshe Rabbeinu was the second one. Moshe and Aaron together, they said, Who are we? What are we? You're complaining to us? We don't control anything. And the third personality is David HaMelech, the great, the great King David. He says in Tehillim, I'm just a worm. I'm not even a man. Those are the three humblest people of all time. Reminds me of the story in the yeshiva of Navardic. There are different schools of Musar back in Europe. And the approach of the Navardic yeshiva was they would really beat themselves up to make themselves stronger. They would try to humiliate themselves to become more of a man. So the story is told about the new young man who walks into the yeshiva and it's time for learning Musar. And he looks around the room and everyone's pretty much saying the same mantra. I've been garnished. I'm nothing. I'm nothing. And he, uh, listen, when in Rome, you know, so uh, he starts trying to emulate them. And he also, you know, I'm a garnished. I'm nothing. So the two guys sitting across the table and they turn to him and they say, excuse me, what do you think you're doing? I'm, I'm learning, I'm learning Musr. I'm part of the yeshiva now. How long have you been here? I just got here today. You just got here today and you already think you're a nothing? <laughs> not, not yet. Not yet. So the three humblest people in the world, Avraham, Moshe, and David. And because they were so humble, they were meek and timid, and they weren't really leaders, and they didn't start any revolutions, they didn't fight in any wars, they were just like doing their own thing, hibernating somewhere in a cave. So we know that's not the case. The Avram Avinu was the paradigm of chesed. But yet the Ramban describes Avraham, he said, when he went out to war, just a few hundred men against the four strongest armies of the time, the Ramban says, he had a heart of a lion and he was a warrior. So he was a Baal Chesed, he was very sweet and very loving and very compassionate, but he could also kill you with his sword better than most other people could. Moshe Rabbeinu, having the, the courage to speak to the most powerful man in the world, leading the Jewish people throughout the 40 years of the Midbar, David Melech was clearly a warrior and a leader. Yet you find when there's real humility, then you have the ability to have real strength. I don't have to prove myself to you. I don't care about how I look. 
I don't care about what you're thinking of me while we're having our conversation. If I'm lacking confidence, if there's a chisorin within my neshama, there's something lacking within me, so then I have to prove myself, and then I'm always scared of what they're going to say. How will it look to others? When you have real humility, like Avraham, Moshe, and David, then you could be a real man. So, I want to share with you from the secular world, if you go to any bookstore, nowadays we don't have many left, but you walk into a, to a Barnes & Noble, you look in the, uh, the self-help section, you'll definitely find a lot of books on how to improve, how to enhance self-esteem. So I want to share with you something. This is from the Mayo Clinic. I figured let's go to a medical source. This is from the Mayo Clinic going back to July 2017. Self-esteem is your overall opinion of yourself, how you feel about your abilities and limitations. When you have healthy self-esteem, you feel good about yourself and you see yourself as deserving the respect of others. Now that line is a little bit, a little bit tricky, deserving the respect of others. I don't think that quite fix, fits in with our Torah framework. It's not about a feeling I deserve your respect. However, it says, when you have low self-esteem, you put little value on your opinions and ideas. You might constantly worry that you're not good enough. When self-esteem is healthy and grounded in reality, it's hard to have too much of it. Boasting and feeling superior to others around you isn't a sign of too much self-esteem. It's more likely evidence of insecurity and low self-esteem like the Rebbeinu Yonah told us 800 years prior. When you value yourself and have good self-esteem, then you feel secure and worthwhile. And uh, it concludes here, maintaining a healthy, realistic view of yourself isn't about blowing your own horn, it's about learning to like and respect yourself, <coughs> faults and all. So it sounds good, it sounds, you know, classic pop psychology, you have to like yourself, the pros and the cons. But, but how do I do that? Let's say I don't like myself. Let's say I have a lot of flaws that really bother me. So you're telling me, no, but it's healthier to, to think highly of yourself. It's healthier to like who you are. But let's say the fact that I'm always yelling at my wife makes it that I have a hard time liking myself. How do you... Nowhere do you find, to my knowledge, in the secular world... Obviously, there's a lot of chachma, and there's a lot of wisdom, and there's a lot of guidance that we could all grow from, and we could all utilize some of those ideas and strategies. But I, I think anything you'll find in the secular world is missing the nakuda. It's missing the point. The point that without this understanding, it's really impossible to have a true self-esteem. What is that point? So that brings us into the conversation of carbonos, animal sacrifices. I think the first question that, that comes to mind, and for sure when you're, when you're speaking with people who don't have much of a background, and they're reading any part of Leviticus or many parts of Leviticus for the first time, the question is, why, why do we have to do this? It just, it's so gruesome, the blood and the guts, and then you take the parts of the animal 
and it depends on the type of carbon. Some is totally consumed by the fire, others we kind of share it. Then you take the blood, there's a whole zurika process, you're, th- you're throwing and then splattering the, the blood on the mizbeach. It just doesn't sound like a user-friendly type of thing. Why so gruesome? I have a better idea. You know, they have big, tall sunflowers. Let's get a sunflower, five, six feet tall. We'll bring it inside the base of Migdash. We'll have a whole ceremony. We'll break it in half together. We'll have the Levim singing at the same time. And we'll spritz some water and we'll burn it. Right? Why do we have to kill animals? So let's go back to the beginning for a moment. Rav Yosef Albo was one of the, the great philosophers of the 1500s. And he gives us a very unique insight into what the struggle, what the fight was between Cain and Hevel, the famous battle of Cain and Abel. He says in the source number six that we know originally human beings were not allowed to eat meat. For over 1600 years of human existence, Hashem made it clear Animals are not to be used for food. Why not? Why was that the initial plan, so to speak? So explains of Yosef Albo, When you kill an animal, you know what that does to you? That makes you numb, that makes you aggressive, that makes you cruel. So being involved with the taking of a life isn't a good thing for a human being to be involved with. He says, furthermore, a second reason why eating animals that wasn't on the diet originally, consuming animal flesh fogs the soul. There's something about eating flesh from another living being and, and, and bringing that into my system, that could almost numb my, my spiritual sensitivities. So that's why the goal was to stay away from meat. We should all be vegetarians. And we know that all changes after the mabul, after the flood. However, now we have the second generation. We have Cain and Hevel, and they're doing their thing in Ganated, and they're working the fields, and they see their father and mother who are only only uh, taking from the fruits and vegetables. And they come to different conclusions. They come to really two different worldviews. Cain says as follows. He has the idea, he initiates the whole notion of a carbon bringing a sacrifice before his brother. But what kind of offering should I bring? I don't want to bring from the animals. I want to bring from the ground, from the soil. He thought that pretty much animal life and human life was similar. And the only advantage that human beings had over animals is that we have the ability to communicate and to use tools and to work the ground. So we could be more productive. We have, we have more function, so to speak. But he thought because we were so similar to animals, it wouldn't be appropriate to kill an animal and bring that as an offering. That was the, the mindset of Cain. However, Hevel, his brother, had a different view. He understood that there was definitely a distinction between human beings and animals. And he felt that it would be appropriate 
to bring from the animals for carbon to Hashem. Who seems to be more of the, the liberal-minded, compassionate, loving personality? Kayan or Hevel? Sounds like Kayan is. I don't want to touch an animal. I don't want to kill an animal. Hevel is the one who goes ahead and kills an animal. And we know the end of the story. Hashem turns to Hevel and his offering, but he seems to reject Kayan. And he doesn't just reject him because it wasn't from the best of the produce. Or Yosef Albu says, he was rejecting him because he was off on his worldview. The Iker Achet, the main sin of Cain, was not that he brought the lower class produce. The main sin was is that he equated himself to the animals. And even though that made him more compassionate and, and more accepting of their life and our life, what did that lead to? That lead to Cain killing his brother Hevel. And, and this is something we see in the world all the time. The idea of, of bringing up animal life because we care about animals. So we almost therefore equate them to human beings. We're not really bringing up animal life, we're just lowering human life. We're diminishing the sanctity of human life. So Cain was the one who eventually killed Hevel because he didn't see much of a difference between an animal and a human being. <coughs> now I want to share with you two very scary quotes. One is from Ingrid Neukrik, the founder of People for Ethical Treatment of Animals, otherwise known as PETA. But I want to read this carefully and thoughtfully, because I think within these words, there is also truth here. And just because we read something we may not agree with, we have to also appreciate the aspects of what's being said that we do agree with. Says Ingrid, Today, although newspapers are full of stories of sophisticated communication in the animal world, and no one doubts that the other animals, we being just one, experience maternal love, pain, joy, loneliness, and fear, we dismiss those feelings as inconsequential. So to dismiss animal feelings is obviously something that a moral human being should not do. What is the evil statement inside this sentence that will lead to the, the, the Misa of Cain, that could lead to what Cain did to his brother? We being just one. We're just one of the animals. She says in the second paragraph, What exactly is so special? Why do people care about human beings more than animals? Is it the faculty of reason, or perhaps the faculty of discourse, but a full-grown horse or a dog is beyond comparison a more rational, a more rational as well as a more conversable animal than an infant of a day or a week or even a month old. She concludes, the question is not can they reason, nor can they talk, but can they suffer? So that's well stated. In the Torah viewpoint, obviously, we don't want animals to suffer. And there's an Isser Deiraisa, there's a Torah prohibition against not only causing pain to an animal, but even allowing an animal to experience pain. And that's a whole halachic conversation by itself that we've had in the past. But where she's so incredibly off, where she's keeping the philosophy of Cain alive, is when she equates us, we being just one of them, and, and, then, and then saying this ridiculous thing that the fact that, that a dog might have more cognitive abilities than a, than a one-week child, 
Therefore, who's to say who's better? Which is basically saying, or at least where this is coming from, is that there's no qualitative difference. It's all about what, what functions better, what could be more productive. But there's no qualitative difference. The second quote here, also very disturbing, is from Peter Singer, a Yiddish Neshama. His parents were Holocaust survivors. And uh, he's the founder of animal liberation. So he coins a new term, which is called speciesism. It's an attitude of prejudice towards beings because they're not members of our species. So just as racism means you're not, that you're prejudiced against beings who are not members of your race, and sexism means you're prejudiced against people of the other gender, so we humans tend to be speciesist, and we think that any being that is not a member of our species, homo sapien, just automatically has a higher moral status and is more important than any being that is a member of another species, irrespective of actual char- characteristics of those species. So again, the the common thread between Ingrid Neukrik and Peter Singer is they're looking at what's the difference, how they function, what they contribute to the world. There's no qualitative difference. So we started off with Rabbi Yonah telling us that the most crucial thing in our own Avodah Hashem is Erech Atzmo, understanding the value of who you are and what you can achieve. And that's why it's not surprising we have the, the famous Midrashic source that the Das Zakedim quotes. If you were to look at any one verse in the Torah and say, this is the main thing, this is the foundation of everything else, what would you point to? So Rabbi Akiva says, to love your fellow as yourself. That's the main source and that's similar to what Hillel tells us in the Gemara. However, Ben Azai argues. Ben Azai comes along and says, no, that's not the most fundamental verse. The most fundamental pasuk is, Ze Sefer told those Adam, when the Torah tells us the end of Parshas Bereshis, that this is the record of humanity. On the day that Hashem created the human being, Bidimus Elokim Asa Oso, in the image of God, He was created. That is the most important idea. That is the most crucial concept in all of Jewish philosophy. Why? It's very simple. Because without this notion that we're created, in the image of Hashem, that we have an infinite radiant neshama within us who defines what we are and who we are, that's the essence of the, of the human being. So then there is no difference between a chicken and an animal. And when you hear the, 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 these, these evil comparisons of, you know, six million Jews and six million chickens is all the same, Holocaust over and over again, the only reason why that statement is so flawed is because we believe in Benazai, that human beings are qualitatively different. That was a mistake of Cain thousands of years ago, and that is the present mistake of some very sophisticated and modern minds even today. The Torah is obviously fighting adamantly against that. That brings us to animal sacrifices. And I just had to share with you, last week, doctor gave me some good feedback, that he wasn't sure how the end fully connected with the beginning, and we had a good, productive conversation. This is going to be one we really have to hold on tight for. Got to buckle our seatbelts.
what exactly are we doing with the animal sacrifices? To add fuel to the fire of the altar of the question, the, uh, the famous line of Shamshar Fal Hirsch, he says, where does the word carbon come from? We have all these terrible translations in English. We have sacrifice, we have offering, but you, you, you can't call it a sacrifice. Sacrifice has the connotation of the whole point is me giving up something. And that's not what a carbon's about. An offering has the connotation that there's some kind of wish or desire that I'm fulfilling by offering my sheep to you. Says of Shamshun Rafael Hirsch, carbon comes from the word karav, like krav maga. Krav is coming close. So the goal of the whole institution of carbonos is that the human being should have this very unique opportunity to come closer with Hashem. So how does that work? So there's a famous Rambam that is quoted very often. Now the Rambam actually says two different things, which is not surprising. That's how we get things to be interesting. In one place in the Mishnah Torah, the Rambam writes that all of the karbonos are in the category of chukim. We know we have chukim and we have mishpatim. Chukim are the type of mitzvos that are beyond human comprehension. So you want to try to understand, you want to rack your brains. It's really above and beyond whatever you could think of. That's what the Rambam writes in the Mishnah Torah. However, in the Moranavuchim, the guide for the perplexed, he has a whole different angle. And he says, you have to understand the ancient world. What was going on in the world more than 3,000 years ago? It was a world of idolatry, a world of paganism, a world of barbarism. They were sacrificing their firstborn child. They were doing all sorts of crazy things. The Jewish people were living in that world. And explains the Rambam, human nature is that when you're so entrenched in any particular society or culture, you can't just rip somebody away. I forget where I, where I saw this or I heard this from somebody. There was a whole, uh, whole article about if you were to bring someone back into the future. That didn't make much sense. Take someone from the past and bring them into the future. How many hundreds of years would it take for them to be so overwhelmed by what the future is that they wouldn't be able to stay alive? I forget the number that was said. I'm not sure how you could prove that at all. But, but it's a similar idea. The Rambam is telling us, you can't just rip a whole society, a whole family out of this ancient world and then expect them to do something totally different. The analogy would be, let's say nowadays, we have a prophet who walks in and he says, you know what? I've been instructed by God. We are no longer doing any of the mitzvos. No more actions. No more davening. No more crying out to Hashem in a time of need. It's just the machshava. We're just going to think about it. The Rambam says that means no more eating matzah, no more fasting. Probably not that bad. I wouldn't miss that as much. No more anything. Just do it mentally. We, 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 couldn't, we couldn't assimilate that. It would be too different. So the Rambam seems to be saying that in order to wean us away from that pagan society, Hashem had to allow us to do a similar type of service, but just channel towards Hashem Echad and not towards all of the uh, Elohim Macherim.
Now the last line though of the Rambam I think is significant. He says at the very end of 13, With this godly strategy, what was Hashem accomplishing? That Hashem was trying to totally erase any, any remembrance of idolatry, and at the same time, trying to establish the Pina Hagedola, the main pillar of Judaism, which is belief in one God, and that Hashem is in total control of everything that happens in this world. So in one place the Rambam tells us, really, the whole notion of bringing sacrifices, offerings, whatever you want to call it, it's a chok, it's beyond human comprehension. In the Mor Nevuchim, the Rambam seems to say, it was almost a, a compromise. Hashem was, was just consenting to where we were, to human weakness, to bring us out of those dark ages into a more evolved state. The Ramban doesn't like that even a little bit. And the Ramban, although he has great respect and admiration for the Rambam, he starts off with very harsh words. He first quotes him, says, Eila Devarov, Ubehem Herich, those are the words of the Rambam, and he elaborates, Vehineheim Divre Havoy, those are meaningless words. Those are worthless. Please ignore what the man just said. Lozu Aderech, that's not the Torah approach. And he has a few pretty strong questions. He says, how in the world can the Rambam possibly be telling us that Carbonos were instituted just to get us away from Avodazara. First of all, who was the first one at least mentioned in the Torah itself to bring an offering? Hevel. Right? Was there any Avodazara at that time? There was no paganism yet. But yet, he brought an offering, an animal that he killed, and it looks like Hashem liked that. That's the first question of the Ramban. The second question of the Rabban is going through history. What did Noah do as soon as he got off the boat? What was the first thing he did before they had the party with the wine? The first thing was bring a carbon, bring an offering. Was there any idolatry in the world at that time that they had to bring a carbon to wean away people who were into paganism? They were the only ones alive. And Hashem accepted that carbon. A third very interesting question asked the Ramban, when we get to Bilam, right, the, the great non-Jewish prophet, what does he try to do to get Hashem to communicate with him? He brings a carbon. He offers a sacrifice. So says the Ramban, what was going on in Bilam's mind? He was trying to wean himself away from idolatry to somehow get Hashem to talk to him. Clearly, says the Ramban, there's something intrinsic, there's something objective, there's something that's real. Bringing a carbon does something. It's not just to wean us away from a pagan society. So the Ramban totally rejects the Rambam, and he himself gives a different approach. He says, what's the real rationale behind Carbonos? The real rationale is, we don't know. Ultimately, it's a chok. And I think if you were to ask any of the Rishonim, any of the early commentators, the Achronim, they would all say, 
we're able to give tamim, to give reasons, to give angles, to give suggestions, but to really fully understand it in all of its details, it's well above and beyond human comprehension. However, says the Ramban, at least emotionally and psychologically, we could understand the benefit of bringing an animal. He says, listen, we make mistakes in life, and when we do so, there are three parts of us that are making that mistake. We have the machshava, we have what's going on in our mind, we have the dibor, what I'm saying, the words that are coming out of my mouth, and we have the action that I'm doing. So he says, really, we don't deserve to be here. Whenever we make a mistake, a severe mistake, do we deserve to keep on having more and more chances at life and mitzvos? Not really. Because when you think about it, did we deserve to be here in the first place? What did we do to make sure to be born? What great mitzvah did I do before I was here? The answer is nothing. HaKadosh Baruch Hu, based on these, these calculations we can never fathom, He did a tremendous kindness for me. He brought me into this world. But I have instructions to follow, and if I'm negligent with those instructions, I really I have no right to continue living, says the Ramban. Hashem doesn't want us to sacrifice ourselves, though. We're not into that. But at least take an animal, sacrifice the animal, place it on the Mizbeach. You do this, this smicha ritual where you're leaning on it, you're connecting with it, you're looking at this thing in the eyes, and you're taking its life. That should bring home a pretty powerful message. This, this should be me. I don't deserve to keep on going. It's all because Hashem's compassion and chesed that I'm still here, that I'm still alive, and I appreciate that. But at least doing this will, will bring home the message, I have to be more careful. I have to be more cognizant. I can't live my life in the fog. That's what the Ramban says. Now, it's somewhat hard to digest. That's a difficult pill to swallow. But what the Ramban is doing is he's answering the first question we had regarding the whole notion of animal sacrifice. Why does it have to be so gruesome? Why do we have to take a live thing and, and kill it? Let's get the sunflower. It sounds like what the Ramban is saying. The reason why it's so disturbing is the reason why we do it. Why is it more disturbing to, to shecht an animal than it is to break the sunflower? Because it's more alive. It's more similar to, to who I am. And therefore I relate to it more. Any other kind of ceremony using anything that doesn't have a ruach and doesn't have life to it, it wouldn't impress me in that same way. It wouldn't have that same impact. So it is gruesome, but it's meant to be gruesome. Now the only, the only problem with the Ramban is that, that that whole philosophy, that whole notion only seems to be addressing the, the karbanas we bring for what purpose? For when we do something wrong. But we know there are other karbanos that we bring, not because I made a mistake, not because I, I wasn't paying attention or I was negligent or irresponsible, but there are other karbanos we bring just to come closer to Hashem. How would the Ramban explain those karbanos? I think that's question number one. Just the, what would the Ramban say for the other types of offerings that have nothing to do with me making a mistake? 
And then we also have to answer the Rambam. What would the Rambam say? The Ramban had three solid questions that clearly there's something special about Karbonos more so than just taking us away from pagan society. What would the Rambam say? So there's a beautiful piece in the Or Gedalia, Gedalia Shore. And he's, he says an idea that is, is a breakthrough it's a breakthrough, I think, in this topic, but it's also very helpful in many other areas of Torah. He says, when the Rambam says, the point of the Karbonos is to wean us away from paganism, what paganism what he was, was he referring to? Was he only talking about bowing down to idols? Actually believing in, in the old-fashioned Avodah Zarah? Says Rabbi Gadashar, he was referring to something much broader than bowing down to idols. He was, he was referring to the whole idea that anything that's taking me away, anything that's pulling me away from who I want to be and what I want to accomplish, right? the nefesh ha-bahamis, that animal spirit within us, when it's distracting and it's getting between me and my goals... And therefore I feel separated from Hashem, I feel distinct, I feel alone. That's a form of, of, of Avodah Zarah. Avodah Zarah is feeling that there's anything else in the world besides Hashem. So when the Rambam writes, it's to wean us off of paganism, he means something profound. It's to get us away from the sense of there's something else going on besides me and Hashem. His terminology is, there's a yesh. There's something that separates me from a Kaddish Baruch Hu. When we take an animal, and we kill the animal, and we bring it on the Mizbeach, and although it's a pretty intense experience, what that's doing is, that's reminding me, and that's bringing home the message as clear as possible. That animal part of who I am, is not who I am. That doesn't define me. It's because I have this within me that I'm distracted and I get annoyed and I get frustrated and I you know, pursue things I shouldn't be into. But that doesn't define me. That doesn't make me me. So I take that and I slaughter it and I sprinkle the blood of the Mizbeach and I offer it as it goes up thinking to myself, I want to elevate the physical part of who I am. That's the Avodah Zarah the Rambam was referring to. That's why Hevel's carbon was accepted, Noach's carbon was accepted, Bilam was trying to connect with Hashem through the carbon, because it's shedding away the animal within us to come closer to Hashem. <coughs> Getting back to self-esteem. How do we have healthy self-esteem? It's only through a realization that I'm more than the animal that the physical aspect of me doesn't define me, that the fact that we look similar and that we can do similar things and we have functions as a horse or as a dog, that means absolutely nothing in who I am. How do we fulfill the instructions of the Rebbe Yonah to realize Erech Atzmo, to know my, my self-worth, to appreciate who I am? It's to remember that I'm in the Shama, that the animal is not me. That's the whole goal of the carbon. 
Shech the behema. Get rid of it. But don't just get rid of it and throw it away. Elevate it. Bring it up. To make it practical, and we'll end with this. When we praise children, if we're praising the behema within the child, that's not going to help their self-esteem. You are so quick. You run faster than all the other kids. If I'm telling you you're good because you're better than somebody else, right? in general, in the world, when you say something is good, what's the definition of good? It means you're better than most other people. What's the definition of best? It means you're better than everybody else. But we're defining Tov based on you in contrast to others. As long as you're better than others, then you're good. That's praising the animal. That's getting involved with the competition. That's trying to build your self-esteem by making you think you're good because you could outsmart somebody or you could outrun somebody or you're getting the best grades in the class. Or the example that I like to use, you know, sometimes you'll, you'll call a child who is a boy a tzaddik. To call a boy a tzaddik is a beautiful thing. And we have a Masora going back a long time. Come here, tzaddikal. Come here, little righteous one. But if I only call you a tzaddik when you happen to do something that pleases me, that's probably not touching the essence of who you are. I don't want to send the message that when you listen to your father, then you're a tzaddik, or even when you're doing a mitzvah, then you're a tzaddik. There's something so much deeper and so much more basic and so much more essential to who you are that makes you a tzaddik. That's your neshama, that's you. I can call you tzaddikal because you're a tzaddik. And I love you. And even when you're not listening, I love you. So I think the take-home message has to be, if we want to fulfill the instructions of the Rebbe Yonah, which is the Pesach HaRishon, the first step in our Vodas Hashem, we have to be very thoughtful and very deliberate. When we praise our children, when we think of what makes somebody accomplishing or successful, let's not think of the animal. Let's think of the neshama. That's the whole notion of bringing a carbon. Do we bring animal sacrifices nowadays? We had a Friday night, and the Goldstein brought some of the FAU boys, and that was a handful for their first time ever having a, a Friday night service. So, so I made the joke between Mincha and Marev. I said, you yeah, know, usually we, we, we're here for about an hour or so, and then after the service, we'll go into the side room, and that's where we slaughter the lamb. And you should have seen their faces. You <laughs> have so although we're not slaughtering lambs right now, but we have to appreciate what it is, and we should try our best to conceptually slaughter the behemoth within us, and at least to appreciate the neshama within ourselves and within others. Have a good night.